Well, hey, everybody, whether you're here in the room or joining us online, waiting for your canceled flight from the Orlando airport, it is, <laughs> it is great to have you along for the ride. We're in the middle of a series that we've called Reinventing Religion. That, And as I've mentioned, I think it's some of the most important material that I've ever shared with you because it takes us right to the heart, both of what Jesus came to accomplish and who his followers are called to be in our world today. And so with our time together this morning, we get to explore one of the most emotionally charged moments of Jesus' life. And it happened the night that he was betrayed by one of his closest friends into the hands of a group of corrupt Jewish religious leaders in a place that Bible scholars refer to as the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, I brought a couple of pictures to kind of get you acclimated. As you can see uh, from this screenshot from our friends at Google Earth, um, the garden, which is right here, is located just across the valley from the temple and the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. The dome structure you see here um, is currently a Muslim shrine that's located on what was the Jewish Temple Mount in the first century. Uh, but what this means practically is that you could have seen the temple and even the smoke from the animal sacrifices that were being offered on the altar at the temple uh, during Jesus' lifetime. And you can see that from the Garden of Gethsemane. And so a little bit about the garden uh, to sort of set the scene. Uh, for literally thousands of years, the Garden of Gethsemane has been home to a grove of olive trees uh, from which olives were cultivated for all sorts of different things, food and fuel in uh, medicine and even for like ceremonial purposes in the temple. Olives and their oil were by far the most significant crop grown in Israel during the time of Jesus. And so it's not entirely surprising that along with the trees which are still there, archaeologists have located an ancient olive press. Uh, in Hebrew, it's called a Gethsemane, which is where we get the Garden of Gethsemane. And they found this ancient olive press in a cave near the garden. Now, olive presses worked on a brilliantly simple design, basically in order to extract oil from ripe olives, heavy stone slabs are lowered onto baskets of olive pulp. And gradually the pressure from the slab's weight squeezes out the oil and it runs down into a pit from which it's collected and poured into clay jars. Now I say all that because the specifics of that process um, actually point us to something pretty profound that Bible scholars have noted. And that is namely that the Garden of Gethsemane was, symbolically speaking, the perfect place for Jesus to spend a few hours during the last night of his life. Because it was in that place that Jesus experienced the crushing emotional reality of what he would soon have to do as his time on earth was coming to an end. I mean, think about it. Like, he knew that he would soon be abandoned by his friends, forced to stand trial before a corrupt Jewish religious establishment, tortured by Roman soldiers, and then crucified for crimes that he did not commit. Moreover, as if that weren't enough, Jesus also knew that at least for a time, he would have to experience the rejection of his heavenly father. And that reality, honestly, is something that we can't even begin to comprehend. In fact, when an early Jesus follower named Luke described Jesus' experience in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, during the last night of his life in his account of Jesus' life, he noted that as Jesus cried out to God in prayer, he felt an anguish so great that here's what Luke tells us. He writes that his sweat was like drops of blood falling 
to the ground. It's like Luke wants his readers to understand that Jesus was very aware of the weight of the world's sins that was about to fall on his shoulders. In other words, he knew what was coming that night. He knew what he had to do, and every fiber in his body was crying out in protest. In fact, that night in the garden, it was almost as if life itself was being pressed out of Jesus by the weight of what he would soon endure. Anyway, at this point in his narrative, Luke tells us that Jesus says something strange, at least from our point of view. Uh, it's one of those things that, honestly, when I read it, it makes me super excited to figure out what's going on so I can share it with all you lovely people. So, uh, but here's what Jesus said during his prayer that night. Father, speaking to his heavenly Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. See, of course, you see, you see what I mean. Like, as far as we can tell, there wasn't a literal cup anywhere in the garden that night. So what cup is Jesus talking about? And if you do some digging, you learn that Bible commentators tell us that in this passage, it's possible that Jesus is simply imagining the suffering that he's about to endure as a cup from which he'll have to drink and he doesn't want to. And while that certainly is a fair way to understand Jesus' words, with the rest of our time together, I want to argue that there's a much more profound answer to the question of the cup's identity. And moreover, I'm convinced that it's a connection that Jesus' first disciples would have made. So now, in order for us to understand what they understood, I need to explain some of the context surrounding the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane. In other words, I need to show you a little bit about what comes before it and what comes after it. Because once again this week, context is key to understanding what's really going on in this passage. So here goes. The scene in the Garden of Gethsemane occurs during the final week of Jesus' life. And as I mentioned a couple weeks ago when we were together, the final week of Jesus' life takes place during Israel's most significant festival. It's a seven-day celebration called Passover. Now, as you may recall, if you grew up in church, Passover commemorates the night that God dramatically rescued the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt. And, and so for first century Jews, it was like one of the defining moments, if not the defining moment in their nation's history. And the narrative of that first Passover is captured for us in the second book in the Old Testament, a book called Exodus. And in Exodus, the author describes the preparations that God advised the people to make in advance of that event. Uh, so here's how God instructed a man named Moses, who had recently been recruited as Israel's leader, to tell the people. Moses, God tells Moses to tell the people, speak to the whole community of Israel. Tell them that on the 10th day of this month, each man must get a lamb from his flock. He goes on, the animals you choose must be males that are a year old. They must not have any flaws. Leave your lamb lucky in the back, the three-legged lamb. You know that one? Anyway. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month. And then the whole community of Israel must kill them when the sun goes down. And he says, take some of the blood, put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where you eat the lambs. And so we read this and we think, okay, so God's instructions to us seem super weird. I would argue to the first people to receive them, they were probably even weirder because they actually had to do them. But in essence, God is asking the children of Israel to demonstrate in a very tangible way that they're willing to trust him. It's like God basically says to the people, listen, if you want to be a part of the new thing that I'm doing, then at the appointed time, put the blood of the lamb on the frame of your door. And then he continues. He says, the blood of the lamb, or the blood of the lamb on your houses will be a sign for you. 
When I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's where we get the word Passover. No deadly plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. And then this, always remember this day. God goes on. For all time to come, you and your children after you must celebrate this day as a feast in honor of the Lord. And now it's interesting, if you read the rest of the Old Testament carefully, you'll notice that God repeatedly tells Israel to remember this moment. Like over and over and over and over again, you need to remember. Those Old Testament authors encourage the children of Israel, remember the night you put blood on your door. Remember when God delivered you from slavery. And, and maybe most significantly, remember that God is a God who can be trusted to do what he says that he will do. Okay, so now as a Jew, Jesus would have known Passover well, and he would have celebrated every single year of his life. But Jesus also knew something that no one else knew. See, Jesus knew that Passover would provide a powerful framework that God would leverage during his last night on earth, a night that occurred during the Passover because Jesus knew that he too planned to instruct his followers to trust him. And he too wanted them to remember a very different sort of exodus that he would bring about. And so on the final evening of his life, Jesus sat with his disciples for a special ceremonial meal called the Seder that is served to launch the feast of Passover. And it was a meal that Jesus knew would be the last supper that he would share with his followers. As it turned out, it would be a celebration that both reminded them of their past and also pointed them to their future. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, the Passover Seder, that meal, is a highly ordered occasion built around four promises that God made to Israel before rescuing them from slavery in Egypt. And the promises went like this. Again, this is from Exodus. God tells the people, I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. And I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. So four promises, if we can go to that next slide, kind of outlines them. The first promise is freedom. God essentially tells the people, I will bring you out from the oppression of slavery uh, the second promise is deliverance. God tells them, I will free you physically from being slaves. And, and, and actually, it's more than just physically. God says, and in fact, I'm going to give you a new identity in the world. I'm going to give you a new purpose as my people. The third promise is the promise of redemption. God basically says, listen, I'm going to pay the price, whatever it takes to set you free. And finally, the promise of protection. God basically says, I will take you to be my people I will be like a husband to you. I will watch over you and I will protect you. You will be my people and I will be your God. Anyway, uh, during the Passover Seder, each of these four promises is remembered by sharing a common cup of wine. This particular cup comes from Johnny's gift shop in Bethlehem and it is made of genuine olive wood. Check out its majesties, right? And anyway, I got it from Amazon. I just made that up, right? Okay, anyway. Um, <laughs> Four promises, four cups of wine. And the cups celebrating the first two, if we could go back to that previous slide, the cups celebrating freedom and deliverance were shared before the meal began as a way to sort of inaugurate the celebration. 
And so on the evening of that last supper, Jesus and the disciples are in the upper room and everything is proceeding according to plan, like it had done every single year before. That is until the moment that Jesus broke dramatically from the expected script. And Luke describes what happened for us this way. He writes, Jesus took the bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And it's incredibly easy for us to miss the significance and the emotion of this moment. But Jesus basically just conscripted a significant element of the Passover meal, the bread made without yeast that it was intended to you know, recall for them the suddenness of their departure from Egypt. And Jesus tells them that, well, now he wants to think of that bread as his body. This is, this is, this is my body given for you, his sacrifice, his offering. And if you just put yourself in the shoes of one of those first disciples, I mean, I would guess they are shocked and offended. As I mentioned, the Passover was like the defining moment of their nation's history. And Jesus not only inserts himself into the tradition, he actually redefines it for his followers. It's like, I know for 1,500 years that Passover Seder has recalled the Exodus, but from now on, I want it to recall me. So whenever you eat the bread of Passover, I want you to remember me. It's, it's my body broken for you. I'm telling you, if anyone other than Jesus had said this to the disciples, I'm confident that they would have stood up and walked out. This was scandalous. Anyway, after, um, after finishing the meal, the third cup is passed. It's, it's the cup, uh, the, the third cup, which is the one that recalls the moment that God promised to pay the price to set his people free, that he would pay whatever that it would take, the cup of redemption. And Luke describes that moment for us this way. He writes, in the same way, after the supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, this cup, this cup of redemption that will pay whatever it takes to set you free, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And when Jesus said these words, his disciples would have been confused. Uh, first of all, Israel was already in a covenant with God. And that had happened at Mount Sinai when God gave them the Ten Commandments and then a whole bunch of other ones. Moreover, Jesus identified the reality that his new covenant was to be ratified like signed, sealed, and delivered. Come on now, right? Yeah. It was going to be signed, sealed, and delivered by his blood being poured out. But as the disciples looked at him, he's like, that sounds great, Jesus, but um, you're not bleeding. <laughs> like you're having a meal with us. What are you talking about? Is this metaphor? We're confused. And as I, as I imagine it, the disciples would have sort of sat in stunned silence, just trying to absorb Jesus' words, figure out what in the world he's talking about while waiting for him to pass the fourth cup. And its passing always came at the conclusion of the Passover meal, and it was the cup that recalled Israel, or that God's promise to protect Israel. Like, I will watch over you, and I will protect you. But here's the thing, when you read the accounts of the Last Supper, it's so interesting, Jesus doesn't pass the fourth cup. Instead, he looks at his disciples and he says, truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And the disciples would have thought, 
um, Jesus, what do you mean? You're not going to drink to God's protection. I mean, we kind of need God's protection like now more than ever. Remember when you trash the temple and the religious leaders hate you and Rome thinks that you're going to start a rebellion against them? I mean, we are surrounded by enemies. If there was ever a year, hate to, I mean, respectfully, if there's ever a year that we need to drink to God's protection, it's now. So get the wine and drink to God's protection. I mean, we don't want to tell you what to do. You're Jesus and all, but this is getting ridiculous. I mean, we need God's help, but that's not what Jesus does. He puts the cup down. He has them stand. They sing a traditional song. Seriously, it's in the text. And then he leads his disciples out of the city of Jerusalem. But as it turns out, this Passover for Jesus had only just begun. So as they walked out of the old city and they looked up at the sky, it would have been a full moon that night. Passover always begins under a full moon. And Jesus and the disciples would have had to walk down into the Kidron Valley and then up a bit of a hill to get to the Garden of Gethsemane. As they kind of went through the bottom of the Kidron Valley, they would have probably found a trickle of blood that started at the temple where countless Passover lambs had been sacrificed. And it was a scene that certainly would have reminded them of the brokenness of the traditional religious system of the Jews. I mean, during Jesus' life, a group of sacred leaders in a sacred place had developed a system by which they could abuse sincere people who were trying to worship God. It's a corrupt religious establishment. And, and they, they believed that Jesus was going to confront it, and he was, but he wasn't going to confront it in the way that, that they thought he would. So after a brief uphill climb, Jesus and the disciples would have reached the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus left his disciples in order to spend some time alone in prayer. A prayer during which, as you may recall, he said, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. So, I mentioned that during Passover, there were four cups representing the four promises that God made to Israel that were included in the meal. But there's actually kind of sort of a fifth cup too that's connected to Passover. And it's mentioned by an Old Testament prophet named Jeremiah, who lived about 600 years before the time of Jesus. So let me show you what Jeremiah wrote, again, 600 years earlier. He said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. In other words, the cup described by Jeremiah represents God's wrath towards the sin of the world. It's like his righteous fury against all the things that are not the way that he designed them to be. And Jeremiah's prophecy makes it abundantly clear that God's holiness demands that someone pay for all the sin. Someone was going to have to drink the cup of wrath. And it was the cup that the Jews believed would one day be poured out in the world, the cup of God's judgment. Now, not surprisingly, um, the first century rabbis, those rabbis who were around in the generation before Jesus, had endlessly debated whether or not this cup, this fifth cup, should be included in the Passover Seder. I, I mean, it is in their Bible, and it is a promise and that someday God's wrath would be given to the nations to drink. 
And, and in fact, that's kind of what God did in Egypt when he rescued the people. So it's certainly appropriate, but, but they went back and forth. Like, should we include this in the Passover Seder? And, and as is often the case when a bunch of religious leaders get together to try to decide something, they decided that they couldn't decide. <laughs> Can you imagine? So the fifth cup held a largely peripheral role in most Passover celebrations. But, but here's the thing. I think... Jesus entered the Garden of Gethsemane that night thinking about that cup. The cup that God would pour out in judgment for the sins of the world. And I think in Jesus' human nature, as he wrestled with that reality that night, he realized that he had to drink it. And that's why he said, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. And then he went on, yet not my will, but yours be done. And as it turns out, the will of his father was that he would drink of that cup. And consequently, less than 24 hours later, Jesus found himself hanging on a cross. He did what God had sent him to do. And he drank the cup of wrath every single drop. And when he had, he cried out, And there's actually more because as he passed from this life, as he dismissed his spirit, Jesus also cried out three of the most beautiful words ever uttered. It is finished. In other words, I've absorbed the wrath. I've paid the price. My blood has ratified a new covenant between people and God. And perhaps most significantly, the cup of God's wrath is empty. In other words, what God did to Pharaoh and the Egyptians, Jesus took on himself. Which means that on the cross, Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for us. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for you. Which means that Jesus didn't just suffer and die for you. He literally drank the cup of God's wrath for you. And that means that there is nothing that you and I can do and there's nothing that you and I need to do in order to pay for our sins. Because Jesus paid it all. Moreover, and this is where something unspeakably good gets even better, because if you're a Christian, you never have to fear the day that you stand before God and give an account for your life. Because, and this is worth writing down for Christians, judgment day happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus fully drank the cup of God's wrath for the sins of the world and then died on the cross. 
And since that moment, there's been a new covenant and a new testament and a new exodus. This time an exodus, not from Egypt, but from sin. And like a new relationship that's available between people and God. People who place their faith or trust in what Jesus did for them. Because I'm telling you, when Jesus died on the cross, he completely reinvented religion. In fact, I think it's fair to say that, that religion died that Friday afternoon. And grace, at the same time, was born. I absolutely love how a, a pastor named Paul summarized all of this in a letter that he wrote to early Christians living in Greece. And, and he phrased it this way. He said, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus, and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things. He goes on, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making, and here's the word, peace. Through his blood shed on the cross. This, my friends, is the gospel. It means good news. It's what went out to the ancient world and transformed the ancient world. As one life at a time, people recognized that God had done something new and that they were invited to be a part of it. Whatever their background, whatever their nationality, whatever their tradition, God's like the doors to the kingdom have now been opened to everyone. Whatever you've done, Whatever you haven't done, whatever rules you followed, whatever rules you haven't followed, there is grace for you. And there is grace for me. So before we, before we close our time together, I, I, I literally couldn't help myself. I was like, we have to do communion. We absolutely have to do communion. And so in just a moment, you'll have an opportunity to come and to take a piece of bread. Jesus said, this is my body broken for you, and to consider that. And, and then he dipped it, to dip it in a cup, you know, a, a cup, the cup of redemption, the third cup, right? This is my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. It's an incredible way to remind ourselves of what Jesus accomplished on the day that his body was broken and his blood was spilled to ratify a new covenant. And just a, a couple of questions that always come up when we do this. Um, you don't have to be a member at Keystone to participate in communion with us. We only ask that you have agreed to trust that the sacrifice of Jesus has covered your sins and that you stand at peace with God as a result. And if you've never understood that and you like today, like the light bulb went on, you are welcome to the table. You are welcome to participate for the first time. Right? You say, God, I'm in. I, I understand. And I don't understand everything. I, it, it, it's a bit wonderful, but I trust. I trust, just like the ancient Jews that put the blood on the doorframe. I trust that you will do what you say that you will do. So in just a moment, um, the band is going to play an incredible song that speaks to the wonder of what Jesus accomplished. And take, take a few moments and just, just reflect on that reality, how deeply you are loved by your Heavenly Father. And then when you're ready, please come to one of the stations and take the bread and, and dip it in the cup and remember 
And if you're here and you're, you're not sure what to do with Jesus yet and you're just exploring, there is no shame in, in just taking a pass. You, we are honored that you are here. Uh, we exist in part for you as well. And so in a moment, I invite you to come and remember how much you're loved by your heavenly father. Remember the new life that he has invited you to live in, in light of that love. And then after the song, I'll come back and I'll close our time in prayer.
Heavenly Father, thank you for hope. Thank you for grace. Thank you for peace. Thank you for love. Something deep within us longs for what you offer. And so once again, we just say thank you. I pray that this week we would carry the light of your gospel into our communities, into our families, into our world. We thank you for the death of your son and the new covenant and his blood and, and we look forward next week to celebrating what might just be the greatest promise of all resurrection and life after this life. For today, we praise you, we worship you, we bless you, we thank you. In the matchless name of your son, the Messiah, our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. We'll see you next week.